0: Amen. Morning, family. Before we get started in our text this morning, I'm going to give you a, a brief preview of what we'll be covering in the pulpit over the next few months. Uh, so today, we're going to just about finish the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to be kind of like, you know that scene in How the Grinch Stole Christmas where he gets a big sled filled with stuff up to the top of Mount Crumpet to dump it, and then he doesn't. So we're going to get just to the end of Matthew's Gospel, just about, and then we're going to take the next three weeks and not finish Matthew's Gospel uh, after we've been working through it for so many years. Uh, We're going to take three weeks to uh, study for Advent the threefold office of Christ, which might sound super exciting to you. Uh, It's incredibly important that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, And our king. What does that mean? Why does it matter? Why is it important? That's what we'll be studying over the next few weeks for Advent. And then uh, we will finish up at the end of the year, we will finish up Matthew's gospel. In early 2024, we're going to study for a few weeks biblical manhood and womanhood. What does the Bible teach us about our roles as men and women in the home, in the church, uh, in marriage? What, is, what does the Bible have to say about all that? And then we're going to dive into the book of Judges. I'm really excited about studying that book with you, and I hope that you will be eagerly studying God's Word with me as we as we walk through that together. But this morning, we're in Matthew 27, beginning in verse Fifty-five. So, if you don't already have your Bible open, go ahead and open it. It's going to help you immensely if you can follow along in your copy of God's Word as we go through the passage together. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you have watched and listened as Jesus has been crucified. Last week, we watched as he breathed his final breath, gave up his spirit, and and uh, ended his life there on the cross. Uh, this morning. We come across one of the most important claims in the entire gospel. Christianity rises and falls based on the truthfulness of what Matthew records here. Some have said that that the account of the resurrection is the gospel. It, it, It is good news only if Christ has risen from the dead. What, what is recorded here is, is not a matter of feelings or preferences or opinions, but truth. To help you grasp this, I want you to imagine that you go to your bank to withdraw some money for your account, but the teller tells you you have insufficient funds. Okay, you need some money, some cash for Christmas, some, some activity with the kids or the grandkids or whatever. You go to the teller. She says, sorry, insufficient funds, and you're, you're just certain that's got to be wrong, so you pull up your phone app, you confirm your balance, you, you, you checked how much you requested, you know that you've got enough. You show it to the bank teller. You say, look, I have sufficient funds in my account, and she smiles at you and says, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, you begin to get frustrated, and so... You say, may I please speak with a manager? And the bank teller once again smiles at you and says, you know, I feel like a manager today. (laughs) Therefore, I'm the only one that you need to talk to. Now you're really, really starting to get frustrated. You notice someone behind the counter that looks a little uh, managerial, and you, you call her over. And you notice she's got a branch manager tag, and so you're finally beginning to feel a little bit at peace. Something is going to be, be able to fix this situation. You explain to the branch manager everything that's happened, and what she says absolutely shocks you. The manager replies, this poor teller is simply living her truth. Who are you to tell her that what she believes in her heart isn't true? Now, the comments that those bankers made are really not all that far-fetched, are they? Those comments, comments like them, are actually pretty common in our world today. What's true for you may not be true for me. My feelings are more important than your facts, Nothing is more important than living your truth, and nothing is worse than questioning the truth claims of somebody else. Those sorts of comments are all over our world today. People say things like that all the time, but nobody would actually tolerate that in the real world. When you're at the bank counter... You're expecting somebody to deal with you in terms of reality and facts, not feelings and opinions. The same is true when you're in the checkout aisle at the grocery store or when you're on the other end of an employee review, or when you're paying your cell phone bill, or when the police officer is writing you a ticket. In normal life, we depend on absolute truth. We depend on evidence. We depend on what can be verified. We depend on what is plausible. Except, it seems, with life's most important questions. With life's most important questions like, Did Jesus really rise from the dead? All of a sudden, far too many people in far too many places live and act like feelings matter more than facts. The big idea I hope to communicate from our passage of Scripture this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus is the central truth claim of human history. The resurrection of Jesus is the central truth claim of human history. Most of us in this room this morning are followers of Jesus. You would agree with that statement. What I want to challenge us with towards the end of our time together this morning is that even though we agree with that, we often function like we don't. We act as if we feel, as if we live our day-to-day lives as if that's not really true. Some of you in this room perhaps are not yet followers of Jesus. And so I would plead with you to hear me out, to listen and see if perhaps this actually might be true, if perhaps the resurrection of Jesus just might be the central claim of the entire universe. With God's help, here's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to consider three matters. We're going to consider the ultimate question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Some possible explanations for the empty tomb. And then the staggering implications if Jesus is really resurrected. Okay? So let's dive right in with the ultimate question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? A famous British philosopher and agnostic named C.E.M. Jode was once asked, if you could meet one person from the past and ask them one question, what would it be? And this agnostic said, I would meet Jesus Christ and ask him the most important question in all the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? A Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard said that the, the central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose again on Easter morning. How we understand that question determines how we will answer every other question. So hear me, brothers, sisters, friends, this is the ultimate question. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he is worth following. If he really rose from the dead, then everything that he said and did is worthy of worship. Then his word is worth dying for and living for. But if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, then don't waste your time. I can suggest a bunch of far better things for you to do on a Sunday morning than come here to Picosan Baptist Church and listen to me talk for 40 to 65 minutes. (laughs) There are far better things you could do with your time. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he is an interesting historical footnote at best. Now, before we consider some possible explanations to this ultimate question. Let me set, let me set some realistic uh, expectations for us. And this might surprise some of you. I cannot prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. I cannot prove it to you. What I can do faithfully from the word of God is give you a plausible expectation and hope that Jesus really rose from the dead. He said, why can't you prove it? Well, the truth is, it's hard to prove almost anything beyond a shadow of a doubt, isn't it? Prove to me that Timbuktu is real. How would you do it? Maybe you show me a map. Yeah, but what if the map makers are in on it? Can you really trust that the map makers aren't a part of the conspiracy? Timbuktu isn't real. Oh, Maybe you show me something from Timbuktu. What even is from Timbuktu? Some of you are going to have to Google it. What's what's a natural resource from Timbuktu? What Google's in on it? And how can you be certain that that thing, whatever it might be, some of you are Googling it now. What is really from Timbuktu? How can you be certain that that thing is actually from there? Because there's a sticker on it that says, made in Timbuktu. Well, who made the sticker and who put it there? Oh, what if you say, well, I've been to Timbuktu. Yeah, but how do I know you're lying or telling the truth? What if you introduced me to someone from Timbuktu? Well, what if she's part of the conspiracy too? You see what I mean? Now, before anybody freaks out, I believe that Timbuktu is real, okay? The point is, it's really hard to prove anything beyond a shadow of a doubt what we can do is give logical explanations and show what is most plausible. I think, with God's help, I can show you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most plausible explanation for what happened to Jesus. Now, let's consider then some possible explanations for why the tomb was empty. Okay, So most people, even most unbelievers, believe that somebody named Jesus really existed and was really crucified 2,000 years ago. You may not know this, but the Gospels are not our only sources that refer to Jesus of Nazareth and even His crucifixion. There are other ancient sources that talk about Jesus that talk about even his crucifixion. So most people even, even atheists, even unbelievers will say, yeah, Jesus really lived and he really was crucified. And most people also understand that for about 2000 years this group of people called Christians that grew really fast in the ancient world, they believed that Jesus really rose from the dead. So how was the tomb empty that Sunday morning? 2,000 years ago. Let's consider five possible explanations. First, there's a theory called the swoon theory. That word swoon simply refers to swooning or, or passing out or becoming unconscious. So, this theory basically goes like this. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. As He's on the cross, at some point, He becomes unconscious, passes out, and They believe that he's dead. They bury him, put him in the tomb, roll the stone over the tomb, and on Sunday morning, he wakes up and he goes and sees his disciples and says and convinces them that he rose from the dead. And they begin this entire movement following this supposedly resurrected Jesus who actually never really even died on the cross. Is that theory plausible? Let me suggest no for a few reasons. First, Jesus' death was brutal. We walked through this a couple of weeks ago. The scourging, the crucifixion. Are we supposed to believe that somebody survived all of that without dying? A second reason why it's implausible to believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross is the fact that the Bible records witnesses. Jesus' death was public. It was a public thing. Look at Matthew 27, beginning in verse 55. Matthew lists several eyewitnesses in these verses. There are also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, I want to stop for just a second, ladies. I want you to notice it says many women were there many women. Matthew only lists three. Mary Magdalene, Mary, his mother, and Zebedee's wife. But many women are there. All of his male disciples ran away. We know from John's gospel that John kind of followed from a distance. He was there, and Jesus says to John, behold your mother, and to Mary, his mother, behold your So John is the one who's there. Everybody else runs away, but many women are there. They're there, and, and they're seeing Jesus crucified. They're seeing Jesus executed. And John, or Matthew rather, mentions three of them as eyewitnesses. Now, if you were to build a religion today, this would be a great way to do it. Elevate the women. But in Matthew's day, not so much, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus who in the second century wrote a book against Christianity. Listen to what he said. He said, Christianity can't be true. Why, Celsus? Because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. (laughs) Now, before anyone gets hysterical, (laughs) Celsus was not a Christian. That is not what the Bible teaches about women. And that is not what we believe about women. Okay, but that is what people in Matthew's day believed about women. So if you were going to make up a resurrection, would you choose a big group of hysterical people, what everyone else would have thought, to be your main eyewitnesses? Absolutely not. So why does Matthew record that there's this big group of women watching Jesus die? Because there really was a big group of women watching Jesus die. He records it because it's true. It's what happened. Another reason why the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross is implausible is because Jesus' executioners were professionals. Crucifixion had been perfected by the Romans by about this point in history. We know from historical records that Romans had crucified roughly 30,000 people by this point, including on one day, 6,000 people were crucified by the Romans these guys knew what to do. They knew how to determine if somebody was dead. In John's account, John actually tells us an important detail that proved the death of Jesus. Look at John 19, 31 to 36. I think it's also on the screen. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it's connected to the Passover, so it was a special Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. A quick note here, people did not die on the cross by blood loss. You normally died on a cross by asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe anymore. You, you would breathe by pushing up the leg muscles to get uh, to be able to inhale and exhale. But if you broke the legs of the person hanging on the cross, they would not be able to breathe. And so we can speed up the process. Crucifixion would sometimes last days. We can speed up the process if we break these people's legs. The text continues, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, this is referring to John, the, the writer, uh, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe, for these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Not only is Jesus fulfilling prophecy as he dies without his legs being broken, but his spear is Piercing his side, probably bursting his heart sac, causing blood and water to flow. He is dead. And the words of Charles Dickens Jesus is dead as a doornail, a fact that was verified by professional executioners. Fourth, Jesus' disciples weren't stupid. Now, imagine that this theory is correct. And Jesus passes out on the cross, wakes up a day and a half, two days later, Sunday morning, unwraps about 100, 200 pounds of grave clothes off of his body. He's got pierced hands and feet, rolls away a stone, overpowers a bunch of Roman guards, walks on those pierced feet to a room full of disciples and convinces them that he is resurrected from the dead. I think more likely, if that were what happened, the disciples would have, if they could have, called an ambulance. Like, Jesus, you don't look well. So this theory is really not plausible. A second theory is the wrong tomb theory. This theory says that in their confusion and grief, the women on Easter morning went to the wrong tomb and upon seeing it empty, they wrongly assumed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Once again, this theory is implausible for a couple of reasons. First, this tomb was probably pretty recognizable and well-known. Look with me at beginning of verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Notice Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, even as he's buried in a tomb. Isaiah 53, 9 says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and he probably had a well-recognized tomb. It's unlikely that these women would have just arrived to the wrong one. Another reason why this theory is implausible is look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They just saw it Friday night. We're supposed to believe that Sunday morning they forgot where the tomb was. A third reason why this theory was implaus- is implausible is that that, the- that tomb was guarded by who? A big group of Roman soldiers. Uh, you can read about it in verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation. So this is uh, Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. It'd be pretty hard to make it to the wrong tomb if you knew that the tomb was guarded by a bunch of Roman soldiers. It'd be pretty easy to pick the right one. How often would you see tombs guarded by Roman soldiers? I would imagine not very often. It'd be pretty easy for these ladies to find the right one. And perhaps the biggest reason why this theory is implausible is all the Pharisees and the Romans have to do to end Christianity before it gets any traction is open the right tomb. Guys, wait a minute. No, no. You took a left instead of a right down that alley. This is the right tomb right here. Here's Jesus' body. Christianity dies. Why didn't that happen? Because they weren't at the wrong tomb another theory is that the body was stolen. The body was stolen. This is the earliest theory put forth by the Jewish religious leaders with the soldiers who were guarding the tomb. So basically, uh, they claimed that the disciples stole the body of Jesus from the tomb sometime in the night and afterwards began to spread the lie that Jesus rose from the dead. you can read about this in beginning in verse 11 of chapter 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them and they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Is this a plausible theory? Is it plausible that Jesus Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples or somebody else? I think it's implausible for a number of reasons. Who would have had motive to steal the body? Not the Romans. They wanted Christianity to die. Not the Jewish people. They hated Jesus and His followers. The only group with motives, perhaps, would be the disciples. But I would suggest the disciples really didn't have much motive either. What did the disciples get on the other side of of the resurrection of Jesus? A lot of persecution. This was not a path to success and prosperity for these 11 remaining disciples, but a path to great hardship and suffering. All of them were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. Another reason why it's implausible is why would the disciples die willingly for something that they knew to be a lie? Many people will die for a lie, but they, they die for a lie thinking that it's true. Think about the men that hijacked the airplanes that flew into the Twin Towers on September 11th. Those men died for a lie, but they believed that those lies were true. Are we supposed to believe that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, knew that it was a lie, and spent the next several decades suffering intense persecution for something that they knew was made up? Another reason why this theory is implausible is because the disciples were never charged with stealing the body. Don't you think if they had really stolen the body, that they would have been arrested for it? Why weren't they? Because they didn't, because the story was made up by the Jewish people to save their own skin. The Pharisees created this story so they could protect their own reputations. Another reason why the disciples are really not likely to have stolen the body is, do you remember what the disciples were doing on Friday night or or Thursday night, Friday morning? Peter, brave, bold Peter, is terrified a simple question from a servant girl. He denies three times that he even knows who Jesus is. This is not the mastermind of the greatest hoax of all time. A a final reason why this theory is implausible is that conspiracies like this eventually come out, don't they? Charles Coulson, who was imprisoned for his role in the Watergate scandal, said this, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. For these reasons and more, the idea that the body was stolen is implausible. Which leads to a fourth theory called the hallucination theory. So this theory basically says the apostles or the disciples were so overwhelmed with grief that they hallucinated that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't really see a resurrected Jesus. They just hallucinated, and they they spread the news about their hallucinations, and all of a sudden, voila, Christianity was born. Is this theory plausible? Well, a couple of reasons why it's not. First of all, it's a red herring. A red herring, it's a misdirect, right? This really doesn't tell us why the tomb was empty. All it does is say, you know, tries to give us an answer for the resurrection account of the eyewitness testimony. And its basic assumption is that the disciples were expecting to see Jesus rise from the dead. But if you read the gospel accounts, these guys weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They weren't expecting Jesus to die. Do you remember what Peter said when Jesus first told him that he was going to die? P- Peter says, may it never be, Lord. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. These guys were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Uh, Another reason why this is an implausible theory is because it it misunderstands how hallucinations actually work. One writer says this, "A a hallucination means seeing something else and mistaking it for what you were looking for. But in the New Testament record of the resurrection appearances, you get the very opposite of that. Mary did not see the gardener near the tomb and think he was Jesus, She saw Jesus and thought he was a gardener. The two on the road to Emmaus did not see a stranger and think he was Jesus. They saw Jesus and thought he was a stranger. The apostles in the upper room did not see a ghost and think it was Jesus. They saw Jesus and thought they had seen a ghost. Misunderstands the way hallucinations work. Hallucinations typically happen for people that are a certain type of people, people that are imaginary, people that, that t- tend to be prone to wild flights of fancy. That's really not true of all the disciples, especially in a, a disciple like Thomas, who refused to believe until he put his hands in Jesus' side and his hands and feet. Hallucinations are also very individualistic, extremely subjective. Think about the resurrection accounts of Jesus. Jesus was seen in the morning, in the evening, outside, inside, by groups of people. First Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that at one point he was seen by 500 people at one time. And once again, all the Romans and the Pharisees have to do to put Christianity to death before it ever gets any traction is just say, hey, wait a minute, the body's over here, guys. Here's the tomb. You're just hallucinating. For all these reasons and more, I think the hallucination theory is implausible, which leaves us with the truth, the truth. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel tells the following story. In 1963, the body of a 14-year-old girl named Addie Mae Collins was buried in Birmingham, Alabama. Addie Mae was one of four African-American girls tragically murdered in an infamous church bombing by white supremacists in Birmingham. Uh, For years, family members would return to Addie Mae's grave to pray, to leave flowers. But in 1998, they made the decision to disinter the deceased for reburial at another seminary. Or cemetery, not seminary. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like you get buried in seminary, but that's another story. (laughs) When uh, workers were sent to dig up the body, they returned with a shocking discovery. The tomb, Addie Mae Collins's tomb, was empty. Now, understandably, the, the family members were terribly distraught. The, the, the cemetery had poorly kept records. Officials were scrambling to figure out what had happened. Several possibilities were raised. The primary one being that her tombstone was erected in the wrong place. But in the midst of all of that commotion, one thing did not happen. Nobody suggested that Addie Mae Collins had risen from the dead. Why? Because an empty grave is not enough to prove a resurrection. In the Gospels, we have more than just an empty tomb. We have eyewitness testimony of a risen Savior. Listen to Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So these women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And as they're going... Verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is just one of many accounts in the gospel's where Jesus appears to people after rising from the dead. Let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, which theory is most plausible to you? Is it that the body was stolen? The disciples were hallucinating? Somehow they made it to the wrong tomb, that Jesus really didn't die on the cross, that there's some other explanation, or that the gospel writers were actually telling the truth, and that Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, then we need to consider the staggering implications of that truth. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't have to worry about a thing that Jesus said, because it was all a lie. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, we better listen to everything that Jesus says in his word because his authority is absolute. He has done what no one else in human history has ever done or claimed to do. He has risen from the dead. Now, if Jesus is really risen, I want to suggest three staggering implications. There's plenty more that we could list, but let's just, list, let's just consider three. First of all, Jesus has authority over life and death. Jesus has authority over life and death. Few things reveal our lack of authority like life and death. None of you had any say on when you were born. None of you. You you are a passive recipient of the gift of life. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was born exactly when he intended to be, exactly where he wanted to be, and exactly the manner in which he chose to be born because Jesus existed before he was born. Eternity past, he existed as the eternally begotten son of the father. He was born exactly when he intended to be, And death, death, even though many of us in our world today try to have authority over when I'm going to die, I'm going to die on my terms, when I choose, when I please, but really we don't have all that much authority over that either, do we? But Jesus did. Jesus died exactly when he intended in exactly the place that he intended to die, the exact manner that he chose to die. Jesus has authority over life and death. A second implication is that Jesus has authority over sin and Satan. Why do people die in the first place? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you remember the Father told our first parents that death would enter into the world the very day that they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. Death, like a cancer, entered into the cosmos. And as a result, Romans 6:23 says, "The wages of sin is death." So if death is a penalty for sin, why did Jesus die? Not to pay his penalty, but to pay yours. Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus said, which of you, who of you can condemn me of sin? Jesus had no sin, and yet he died to pay the penalty for your sin. But once that penalty was paid, in the Father's time, in the Father's good pleasure, the Son is resurrected. Why? Because death has no hold over him. Death has a hold over us. We're sinners, but not Christ. In his resurrection, Jesus reveals that he has authority over sin and over Satan. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the very moment when Satan feels like he's getting his epic victory over Christ, Christ is dropping the mic because he has defeated sin and Satan forever. The sin in your life, Christian, that seems to have such power over you has been defeated at the cross. The Satan in our world that seems so powerful and strong has been defeated at the cross. Jesus has authority over sin and Satan. And finally, if that's true, Jesus has authority over you and me. Jesus has authority over you and me. This is what Matthew wants us to get from his gospel is that this King Jesus is your authority and you and I better submit to him. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen to Romans chapter 10 verse 9. It says, If you confess, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Dear friend, would you today discard all of these ridiculous theories about the resurrection and say, he's alive, I believe it, he's alive, I'm willing to give him my life, there is no sacrifice that I'm not willing to pay, give him control of all of it. Be turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus? He has authority over you and me because he is risen. And to the Christians in this room, fighting with sin, maybe feeling like you're fighting a losing battle with sin. Maybe feeling like you can't hold on much longer. Maybe feeling like giving up. If Jesus is really risen, you are not wasting your life. You're not wasting your life. Years ago, when Jonah and Zoe were probably like four and two, I was reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia to them. And if you ever read the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you know that Aslan, the great lion, is, is like a picture of Christ. And there's this scene where just like Christ was crucified on the cross, Aslan is put to death on the stone table. It's a a vile and disturbing chapter in that book. And I read it to my little kids, and, and I saw tears on their faces as they wrestled with the fact that this beloved character in this incredible story was dead. He was the one that was supposed to make everything right. He was the one that caused Lucy and, and I was going to say Lucy and Linus, but that's a different story. Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan to feel incredible things when just they heard his name. He was the one that caused the frost to dethaw. He was the one that brought in hope into Narnia and he's gone. We finished the chapter that night. The kids went to bed and Time came to read the next chapter. And if you know the story, if you don't, sorry, spoiler alert, you had a chance. It's been a long time since it was written. If you know the story, the stone table breaks and Aslan comes back to life. And as I read that story to my little children, they started, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this, they started jumping up and down on the bed and celebrating. God's land is alive. Can you believe it? He's alive. He rose from the dead. This is incredible. Isn't that the way that we're supposed to feel about the risen Christ? I know. I know. We hear this so many times, and something affects us differently the first time we hear it, right? You can't undo that. But which is more the way the Father would have us to feel. Ho-hum, Jesus rose from the dead. Or celebrating that He is alive. Christian, would you ask God to help you to live like and feel like and think like He really is risen? Risen. Would you ask him, would you pray with the psalmist? praise, restore to me the joy of my salvation? God, would you help me to to feel this in such a way that my heart aches with longing to follow Jesus? Would you help me to to, to allow this to be so real to me that the sufferings of this world are, are, are but a momentary light affliction, compared to what awaits me in Christ? Would you cause me to see Christ as so glorious and beautiful that the things of this world grow strangely dim? Would you cause me to see this resurrection for the beauty that it is? Would you forgive me for how easy it is for me to live like my life is devastated because some hard thing happened? When I've forgotten that Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive I'll leave you with one final story the great Martin Luther often struggled with severe depression he could be one of the most lovable jovial guys to hang out with everybody wanted to be with Martin Luther but when depression hit it really really hit And there was one particular season where Martin Luther was absolutely just crushed by depression, deep, deep sorrow. And he was spending time with the Lord at his table and his wife knew kind of what he was feeling, what he was struggling with. And his wife, Katie Luther, walked into the room that morning dressed in her funeral clothes. And Martin Luther looked at her And he sighed and he said, oh my goodness, what else has happened? Who else died? How could this get any worse? And Katie Luther, who had a wit to rival Martin's, said, well, I just figured that Jesus must have died again because you're acting like there's no more hope. And so I put on my funeral clothes and all of a sudden that snapped Martin out of it. Dear brothers, sisters, if you really believe that Jesus is risen, let that be what snaps you out of it. You see your hardship, you see your sorrow, you see these things that that feel like they're crushing you, but look again to the cross, look again to the empty tomb and rejoice because he is risen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending us your son. Thank you that he was born in Bethlehem that he lived a life without sin, that he died on a cross just outside the city in Jerusalem, and that on the third day, a stilled heart started beating, and Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to pay that price for us. We pray that you'd snap us out of it. I don't know what we're caught into. I don't know what we're lulled to sleep by? What what is causing us deep sorrow? But God, we pray that once again, once again, you would use the reminder that Jesus is alive to snap us out of our selfishness, out out of our despair, out, out of the lies that we're believing, out of our preoccupation with small things that don't really matter out of our failure to love one another the way that we should, out of our laziness as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, as children, whatever it is, God, that we are caught up in and we're living as if, we're that bank teller, our feelings are more important than the facts, we pray that once again, you would use your word to wake us up. Forgive us for how easy it is to wander. And restore us again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?